Welcome to the Law 391 podcast series. I'm very excited to be trying this out and to supplement our seminars and our readings with some discussions with people who have played important roles or have special interests in the Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion project. And kicking it off today, we are joined with Tim Dixon and outstanding lawyer for my money, one of the best lawyers working today, and I think many people would agree with that assessment. And he is going to talk about his work representing First Nations within the Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion regulatory process. Now, the difficulty with this podcast series is that we are speaking with people who have a broad array of experience in a broad array of different facets of this regulation. And at the outset of the course, we are not yet in the possession of the full picture in the same way we will have at the end of the course. And so there may be some things in Tim's discussion which will be clearer to you by the end of the course once we've gone through the regulatory process more generally. For today's purposes, the part of the discussion which touches upon the Aboriginal governance questions and jurisdictional questions that are going to be the subject of our seminar discussion comes towards the end. So Tim gets to those issues and addresses them in a fascinating way. But before that, he talks more broadly about some other facets of the process and also explain some of the practical difficulties facing First Nations who are seeking to effectively participate in the process. We will be watching some videos as well of Tim's presentation before the National Energy Board as part of our seminar. So you'll be able to see some of the examples of the interactions that he describes in this podcast. So with that brief introduction, Let's get to my interview with Tim Dixon. It's my pleasure to be joined today on this first podcast for Law 391 by Tim Dixon. Tim Dixon is a partner at JFK Law. He has been counsel on numerous cases involving the regulation of major projects, which include, for example, representing Vancouver on the highly contentious litigation concerning the expansion of the Canby Skytrain line. Tim has also acted for First Nations in a variety of major project regulation contexts, including matters relating to mines, dams, and salient for this class, the Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion. So thank you, Tim, and welcome to our podcast. Uh, Thanks, Oliver. Um, My pleasure to be here, and um, hi, uh, all. it's actually my first time being on a podcast, so uh, apologies for my uh, my unsmoothness. <laughs> well, you're doing very well so far. Um, so, Tim, I was wondering if first you could describe your involvement with the Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion regulatory process. Uh, sure. On the on the regulatory process, I represented um, three different uh, First Nations. Um, who participated um, in the National Energy Board processes and um, and in the uh, consultation with the federal government after. And um, 
and as you may know, there were uh, two different sets of each of those, uh, right? There was the original um, uh, hearing before the NEB, uh, and then consultation, which led to the first approval of the pipeline, um, formally the approval of the Certificate of Public Convenience and Necessity. And then, as you know, that was set aside uh, by the Federal Court of Appeal in the Slaywood decision, and they um, went back um, for another uh, process before the NEB on uh, marine shipping. And then there was another round of consultation on everything, marine shipping and the terrestrial side of stuff, the pipeline, um, with the, with Canada. And uh, and then that led again to approval of the CTCN. I I, uh, I, I uh, brought a application for judicial review of the NEB's report on behalf of my clients. Um, but then um, my clients did not uh, move forward in the litigation for for various reasons, um, and uh, yeah, so that's that's most of my involvement. I, I am also uh, um, involved um, in a uh, in a committee um, of uh, representatives of the First Nations um, along the pipeline and shipping routes. With uh, representatives of the federal government and uh, and the NEB, now the uh, Canada Energy Regulator, and um, and for that group, I I also represented them before the NEB on the the second time around. But I'll I'll just talk about what I did with the uh, the three First Nations. Yeah, that's a broad and impressive bit of involvement and. Um, certainly that committee is an interesting and, as I understand, fairly unique occurrence with the Trans Mountain Pipeline. Have you, have you been involved in that in any other, uh, in something similar for any other project? Um, no. It, it, so the body is called the Indigenous Advisory and Monitoring Committee for um, the Trans Mountain Pipelines and Marine Shipping. And um, there is one uh, for the... Uh, the Enbridge Line 3 project, um, which is along the, the prairies and then goes down south into the United, United States. Um, it's a sort of uh, smaller version of of the TMX um, committee. And uh, yeah, these were, and they were both, uh, Canada announced that, well, Canada made the announcement, the initial announcement, um, approving both pipelines at the same time on the same day and uh, as part of that um, it announced that it would um, uh, do these committees uh, and fund them and uh, uh, so these were these are sort of you know an experiment um, to to see if we can come up with a new model for um, for making the for improving the construction and monitoring and operations of these kinds of projects um, better, and um, and and various things are being tried in other contexts uh, that are sort of somewhat similar. The notion of of committees 
um, of joint committees and and uh, an effort at some consensus decision making. Um, the I would say it, it it hasn't been done on a scale like this. Um, and you you know in the other context it's usually say like an oil sands mine or um, an LNG facility, uh, not the pipeline, but the liquefaction facility, where you have, um, you know, a, a much smaller number of, of nations that are involved. And um, it, it is, uh, it's, a, it's a more challenging thing when you do it on a linear project that crosses through, uh, you know, a really long linear, linear project that's going to cross through the territories of many different nations and um and that's what we have here and uh and that hasn't been done before yeah that's um that's fascinating and certainly one of many things that i think makes the trans mountain regulatory process somewhat unique um so yeah i wonder if we could talk a bit about the national energy board process and what your involvement was there and also perhaps to uh, explain what it was like to appear before the National Energy Board, um, perhaps comparing it to some of your other uh, courtroom experience and um, maybe touching a bit on the, the positions that you advanced on behalf of your client before the National Energy Board. Uh, sure. So, um so the so the the national energy board uh in this context is determining whether um it believes the uh the pipeline to be in the public interest and as part of that it was mandated to conduct an environmental assessment um environmental assessments are um you know, a, a very common aspect of um, the regulatory review of major projects. And they take um, place, in, they, they unfold in, in different forms. Um, in British Columbia, um, they are um, much less formalized. They are not, uh, they don't look like court um at all really they are um uh there there's a working group struck of uh, the various interests involved obviously the proponent um um various elements british columbia um sometimes other um uh, local governments and then uh, the um most affected first nations and they have um, meetings, and they go through technical issues, and they um, and they look at um, and, and they sort of assess the um, the the application uh, for the environmental assessment certificate that the proponent has put together. And these these applications are very very technical, very long, hundreds of pages, if not more, and um, and you really need to bring to bear a lot of technical expertise. Um, 
then the the federal model um, often has a hearing component uh, to it, um, but it's still not uh, that court-like. It's uh, so the so if you have a review panel, they will often have hearings where they hear witnesses, um, and and some questions can be asked, and um, and there's a there's a schedule for making submissions, and the submissions look a fair amount like written argument in in court. Um, but um, but but the people sitting on the review panel, um, you know, are not lawyers, don't have uh, much access to legal advice, and they are bringing their uh, scientific expertise generally uh, to bear on the problem. The the National Energy Board is is quite different, and it's um, it's a little bit uh, it, it's quite rare in that it is highly quasi judicial. It is stated to be a court of record, uh, and it has um, in its statute uh, the old statute um, it's been replaced now. Um, uh, it has uh, power to decide all questions of fact and law uh, necessary uh, for it to uh, um, decide the issues before it. And um, and it uh, not everybody who sits on the board is a lawyer, um, but generally, you know, you have a panel of three. Generally, I think one will be, and they have um, uh, quite a lot of legal advice in house, and they can draw on that. And they very much do. Um, so its its procedures are are much more formalized. Uh, you can make ap applications, uh, like procedural applications. You'll get written reasons. You'll argue case law in front of them. Um, their reasons are uh, come out look uh, a fair amount like court judgments. Um, and um, and in some processes, you'd have pretty extensive cross-examination. So um, there have been, um, as you probably know, the, the two the two big National Energy Board um, projects in British Columbia in recent years have been the Northern Gateway Pipeline and then TMX. And on Northern Gateway, there was a lot of cross-examination of of uh, witnesses, um, particularly. Enbridge's witnesses, and um, you know, and it made the news and uh, was reported on pretty extensively, um, and obviously also took a lot of time in the hearing. Um, so uh, when when I uh, on TMX uh, <laughs> with the Northern Gateway experience, they decided they would not have uh, any cross examination of witnesses. Um, in, they would just rely on the information request process. So you could tender, you, you have certain moments in the process where you could tender in writing information requests and they were quite difficult to put together um, because um, you, you would have to reference all the various documents and set it out in a certain format. And um, And if you hadn't been paying pretty close attention to uh, this process as it rolled along, 
um, you'd be pretty lost because you wouldn't know, um, even if you knew it was in the application and you were asking about the application, you wouldn't know what um, Trans Mountain had said in response to the NEB's information request previously, because there are many, many rounds of those, and um, and you just get an answer back saying referred to this response, you know, that we gave months ago. Um, which uh, brings me perhaps to another point, which was these these things are these kinds of um, regulatory processes for major projects are um, like very complex and very time consuming and uh, very expensive to participate in effectively um, because they're so technical and there's so much information at play. So um, in, um, I think the initial application that Trans Mountain filed uh, for its CPCN was 15,000 pages long. And it's 15,000 pages of like dense technical material. Um, and then that's just the start. After that, there are reams of paper that are filed. Um, and at the end of the Northern Gateway proceeding, it was um, about 175,000 pages of material uh, that have been filed in the proceeding. And um, it was easily that much uh, in Trans Mountain. So, um, so it's very, you know, it's, as I say, like it's, it's extremely detailed. And, 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 uh, and so it takes a lot, you have to really be in it. If you want, if you want to engage on the, on the technical issues, which are really the heart of the of the environmental assessment and the review, you you know you really have to be committed, or else you will soon get lost. And so one of the major complaints on the First Nation side was that uh, was the lack of funding. Um, so my my clients, uh, two of them were participating together, and one was separate. And I I think um, I think so. The two groups uh, got uh like like thirty four thousand dollars each or something like that and i and and we we complained uh uh very vigorously about um how little funding this was to to actually participate in a two over two year process with you know so much paper and to be able to you know muster our evidence and uh, and 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 do any sort of review of the application and look at the impacts potential impacts and risks uh for um the nation's rights and interests and um you know our point was that this is just completely inadequate there's no way that we're going to be able to do that effectively um for so little money and and because we're in such a um a legalistic process here you know, you really have to have uh, legal counsel involved, and um, and if you're going to have legal counsel involved, they have to be, you know, they can't just be like a little bit involved. They have to be pretty involved because they, in order to do anything effectively, you have to know a lot about what's going on in this proceeding, as I've been talking about. So, 
um, you know, I, I one of one of the lines I used when complaining about the lack of funding was that I, I, I can't even they can't even pay me to read the whole application. Uh, and we can't even afford to do that. And that's just the start. That's just like uh, um, um, not even 10% of of the paper that's going to be relevant in this thing. And um, so, uh, so. Oh, this. Um, so as I said, there were three different nations. Um, one of them was a nation called Kwantlen First Nation. That and um, and there I, I do um, continue to work with with them. And they are um, their main residential reserve is on the island just off of Fort Langley. There's a bridge that little bridge that goes over. Um, and and so they're actually located in the middle of the Fraser River. And obviously, one of the major concerns here is that um, is that is an oil spill from the pipeline, and then it getting into the Fraser River. And the Fraser River, um, some of you may know, um, is uh, has been the, the most um, productive um, salmon river around. Is is uh, you know the major river in British Columbia is uh, um, supported a, a, a very very um, um, large indigenous population um, prior to the coming of smallpox, um, and and you know really supports a, like a really uh, vibrant and diverse um, range of indigenous peoples, although. You know, from from the mouth all the way up into the middle of the province, and um, and so this this river is very very important, and um, and and Kwantlen, as with uh, a great many of the of the indigenous interveners, were very concerned about the risk to the river. Um, the uh, the other matter, I mean, there are many matters. One other very large matter that they're concerned about is about their uh, their governance of their territories. Um, you know, all of the all of the nations have claims to not just Aboriginal rights, not not just the right to to um, harvest salmon from from the Fraser and for for sustenance, but they also have claims to to land and to um, being able to to govern that land, to control it, to decide what goes on there, to have the economic benefit of it. And Kwantlen, you know, is uh, um, like many of the nations in the lower mainland has has had its territories uh it's had to watch while um its territories have been systematically taken from it by um by all the settlement that has occurred and in fact um fort langley uh is where um british columbia was declared um to be a a, a new colony in 1858, and um, it's sort of ground zero for 
in, in a sense, um, for colonization of the mainland. And and so so it's very concerned about that. It wants to see that its claims to Aboriginal title are taken seriously uh, within this uh, regulatory process. And by this body that is empowered to decide questions of fact and law. Um, and and just on that on that point, you might recall um, that there were those protests on um, Burnaby Mountain, uh, just below Simon Fraser University, um, because Trans Mountain was going was going to test uh, the notion of um, drilling a pipeline um, through the bottom of the mountain, boring a a hole underneath, and it had to do some uh, test um, digs in an area that was uh, a park, a Burnie Bee City Park, and uh, they need to cut down some trees to do that, but there was a bylaw of Burnie Bee City bylaw saying thou shalt not cut down trees in, uh, in a park. And, and so there was a conflict between that bylaw and the NEB saying yes, you can go ahead, and do your test drilling, and um, and so that came to a head. And the question is, well, which which one prevails, right? And so it's a classic federalism question. Um, and and the NEB had a special hearing about that constitutional issue, um, and and it gave extensive reasons on how the NEB's order um, uh, had to prevail um, as a matter of paramountcy. Um, over the over the city of Burnaby, which receives its powers by way of a provincial statute, um, and so you know it's able the the board the NEB is able to decide that question of constitutional law. And Quantlin, we we came forward and said, well, we need you to decide um, a question of constitutional law for us, and that and that is this: we have put before you. Uh, very extensive and detailed evidence uh, regarding Quantlin's um, um, uh, evidencing ab uh, Quantlin's Aboriginal title um, over um, a portion of the proposed pipeline route, and um, and and you know the test for Aboriginal title is: Did you have exclusive? Did you exclusively occupy? Um, an area, a specific tract of land, um, in 1846, in about 1846, which is when uh, the Crown asserted sovereignty. Um, and and so, you know, we're not saying um, make some sort of general declaration. We know this isn't a court, um, but for the purposes of what your task is, um, which is uh, deciding whether this uh, pipeline is in the public interest. Um, you have all the jurisdiction you need to decide questions of fact and law for that purpose. And so, just for this regulatory purpose, we are asking you to decide um, whether we have made out um, a our claim to Aboriginal title and over a portion of the pipeline route. And if so, then. Um, 
that uh, title would be infringed by the pipeline because Kwantlen does not consent to it going across uh, its land. And then National Energy Board, you're, you must decide whether um, that infringement would be, would be justified. And you know, there are a number of components uh, to that. Um, to that question, and you know, and 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 we were, you know, our 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 effort was to have Quantland's Aboriginal title claim taken seriously, that issue put squarely, and we recognize that there may there can be instances when um, large, um, you know, projects can um, justifiably infringe Aboriginal title. But, but, but to, do, to, to make that out, you know, there's got to be proportionality. There's got to be the concern to minimize the impairment. There's, you, there's um, um, the need for um, compensation. And there's a need to make sure that there's been adequate consultation and accommodation, which we did not believe had had occurred um, and and so um, so that's part of the case we made in front of the National Energy Board and Slaywood also um, advanced a, a similar argument they engaged in the uh, in this they, they put a lot of resources into their involvement as as you may know and and uh, took on a bunch of different issues but including that one, um, and um, and so we uh, we we put forward our case in our written argument, and there was an oral argument component to it as well. Uh, we were at um, we we're at that casino hotel um, that you drive by. Um, when you get on to Highway One and 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 start to sort of drive out to uh, toward you know Burnaby and Coquitlam, and it's uh, as you drive out, it's on your right, and uh, we're just in these you know one of those nondescript uh, enormous ballrooms, and um, and I would say um, I, I recall getting uh, some some questions uh, from the board. Um, one of them was, well, how could we determine um, whether there had been adequate consultation um, yet? Because you know there's going to be further consultation later on, and um, and which is, uh, I think, a fair question. And um, and uh, um, and I think I. I can't remember exactly how I responded, but I think um, what I wanted to say was that, well, you would, if you believe it had not yet been discharged, then you need to say that, and uh, and then it will be up to the crown to um, to to seek to dis discharge um, that duty going forward, um, and uh, I can't remember what the other questions were like. There weren't many of them. And I would say that my impression uh, um, delivering argument there was that um, there was not a lot 
of um, detailed engagement. You know, I was one of, Kwantlen was one of um, many interveners. This thing had gone on for a long time. Um, I, the issues were, you know, this issue was fresh for them. <clears throat> but in general, uh, the broader context was not at all. And um, and I think there was sort of, uh, there was not, uh, there was just not a lot of, uh interest um from the board and ultimately in the board's report um this issue wasn't um addressed at all um and so the result is that uh the board was willing to deal with constitutional issues raised by the company and not willing to deal with constitutional issues raised um by the nations and uh you know obviously that's that's disappointing and it wasn't unexpected but it's disappointing uh let me let me just say um two more two more things on this and then maybe we'll stop one is that um there's quite a lot of there's a, there's a fair body of supreme court of canada case law that um that addresses the role of tribunals in deciding constitutional issues. Um, and, and so the Martin uh, line of case law uh, dealing with uh, human rights tribunals and their applica application of the charter um, is, is one. But then there's also, um, from 2003, I believe, Paul and Forest Appeals, Forest Appeals Board. Um, and and in that case, um, Mr. Paul, um, indigenous belonging to one of the coastal nations, I forget exactly which, um, was cutting down trees, uh, I believe, in order to build a house for himself. And um, <clears throat> and he was he didn't have a cutting permit, and he was uh, charged with a regulatory offense of um of logging without a permit and and as a defense he asserted an aboriginal right to harvest timber for you know um for 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 domestic uses and um and 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 the there and there the the commission said okay okay well we'll 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 look at that and Mr. Paul was saying, well, no, you're actually not able to look at it. I do have this Aboriginal right, but uh, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not content for you to decide this. You don't have, um, you don't have the jurisdiction to decide this. There's sort of the opposite approach being taken. Um, but the, ultimately, the Supreme Court of Canada said that the, the commission does. And uh, and you know the Constitution is there to be. Uh, it, it's not, as you'll recall, I think in Martin it said, you know, it's not it's not some holy grail that um, only only judges can touch. You know, it is it, it's the law of the land, and it is uh, it should be applied um, by um, those bodies with the power to decide questions of law. 
And 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 the NEB very much has the power to decide questions of law, and that's what we were asking it to do. Um, but the other point I want to make is is this. Um, you know, <laughs> one of the one of the things we were doing, Quantlin opposed the the project. Um, very clearly opposed TMX. Um, and one of the things we were doing is raising a very difficult legal question uh, for the board that um, uh, that that puts them in a bit of a dilemma. And um, because you know we wanted to create an issue um, that we could. Um, uh, I mean, I mean the issue was there was the issue is sincere in that they do want their Aboriginal title respected. But but also, uh, you know, sort of knowledge that this 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 board probably wouldn't, and then that would give us a clear legal issue on which we can maybe challenge uh, the CPCN. But it is, if you step back, um, you know, there's something like um, 117 different nations um, that are affected by the um, pipeline and the marine shipping. Um, some of them are in Al Alberta and, you know, our treaty nations with uh, which raise different issues. Um, but many of them have unresolved claims to Aboriginal title and rights. And how do you accommodate that within, um, within a regulatory process? Uh, process already takes two years and you know you hear all the time uh, those on the industry side and on the right um, complaining about how long these processes take um, and how uncertain they are um, and how how do you really um, uh, where where uh, where you have the a body that has the power to decide questions of law how how does it practically deal with these questions of Aboriginal rights and title in a meaningful way? And you know, Delgamuk and the Chilcotin case, Silkotin case, um, they they are two of the, well, the I think the two longest trials in British Columbia history, um, and and so you know. Because you're litigating uh, um, what what the state of affairs was in 1846 um, when there weren't that many written records around, um, it's uh, it's it's challenging, and you know, um, but just ignoring these issues and just um, dealing with it on a consultation basis when you otherwise do have a body that that could make Actual findings of fact and of law um, seems very inadequate to me, and I say that again because I think it points out that we need a better system than just dealing with things on the basis of asserted claims that generate a, um, a right to be consulted and maybe accommodated and where we live in this sort of twilight world um, that has no 
clear edges and is so amorphous. Um, uh, that's my view, uh, but where we're at is, is highly unsatisfactory. Tim, thank you so much for that. Pleasure. That was, that was great. Thank you. That was outstanding. Um, thank you to Tim Dixon for joining us today.